Is that better? If you heard a big clanging noise earlier, it's, it's, it was me or it. It was its fault, right? Turn your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Again, it's a privilege to be here with you tonight. And as it was said, I, we had just gotten back actually a Friday night from South Carolina for being with my parents and over the, Chris, over the Christmas holiday, over the Thanksgiving holiday, traveling, knowing that my sister was having surgery and discovered bad news and related to all of that. It was just prayed. And then I knew going down, my grandmother was in the last days of her life, but God arranged it. It wasn't us who arranged it, but God arranged it so that I got to spend some time with her before she passed. She passed as we were on our way, well, actually the next day after we got here. So my son and I are going to fly back down on Thursday, whirlwind trip to do the funeral of the graveside service, and then back on Saturday. So appreciate your prayers for that. And in light of that, I want to talk to you tonight about hope, hope, hope. Uh, have you ever heard the story? I guess it's not a true story. It's probably just a made-up story, I would imagine. If you know better, you can tell me. Have you ever heard the story of the king who offered a prize for someone who could paint uh, the perfect picture of peace? Have you ever heard that story? And... Um, of all the pictures, there were two that he narrowed it down to or that were especially uh, special to him. One was that of a calm lake that mirrored the, mount, mirrored the mountain above it and uh, with clouds and a blue sky. And as he revealed that picture, the people thought, surely that, that's the winning painting. I mean, what a picture of peace. Then he pulled out the other and showed it to the people. It was a painting of bare and rugged mountains. Uh, it was raining and lightning in the background with water crashing over a waterfall. Certainly that wouldn't win the prize compared to the other painting. How could that ever represent peace? Well, that was the one that the king chose, and that's the one that won the prize. And here's why. As the king looked at the painting, he found a little crack in one of the rocks. And in one of those cracks was a bush where there was a bird's nest with a mother bird perched on that nest. There was that bird sitting nicely and calmly in the midst of the storm with the crashing water. And that's why he chose the picture. No, I chose that picture. Because he explained that peace is not the out is not the absence of outward commotion. Peace is the inner calm that you have in the midst of all the commotion. True peace is only ever possible for the true Christian. It makes me think of the story of Peter. You remember James is beheaded. And once Herod saw that that uh, really got people riled up, he, he took Peter in. And it sort of looks like, we're not told explicitly, it looks like maybe Peter's head is next. And do you remember the, the divine rescue from the prison? What was Peter doing whenever he was about to be rescued? Biting his fingernails? No, he was sound asleep and the angel had to come and nudge him to wake him up. Now, how do you explain a man sleeping when potentially his life was at risk? You could say, well, he, he remembered the prophecy of Jesus that he would be an old man when he would be killed. Maybe that's true. So he believed the word of Christ. I think that there's more to it than that. I believe Peter knew the perfect peace of God in his heart. 
He had that inner calm in the midst of the storm. And that's what real peace does. Real peace is tested not on a sunny day, 80 degrees, and you're out on a nice calm lake. True peace is when you're in the midst of a massive storm in life or as a church, and yet there is that calm, there is that settledness in your soul. In other words, that peaceful, calm lake is in the heart. And let me ask you this, what is one of the hidden streams that feeds and supports that kind of peace? Well, certainly one of those hidden streams is the hope that we have in the gospel. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning, our hope. As I told you just a moment ago, and I was telling you about my trip, I was able to go down to South Carolina to be my, with my parents for Thanksgiving. Uh, as I told you, I, we traveled there with, with heaviness, knowing that uh, a family, close family member, my sister was having surgery, and while there we found out news that was not very encouraging, quite the opposite. My grandmother was dying at, at home. She passed away early yesterday morning. And you know, in times like these, and I've said this and maybe you've said it, I really don't know how in the world people make it in this dark world without Christ. Without the hope of the gospel, what keeps people from going stark raving mad in the midst of the storms of life with all of the tragedies? You don't know what a day will bring forth. And all of a sudden, tragedies come your way. How do people make it? They don't really make it. They're surviving. They're surviving. And so that's why I'm so grateful for the hope that we have in Christ. Now, I've turned you to 1 Peter chapter 1 because there's a a few verses here. In fact, there's a lot of hope in First Peter, but here in the first opening verses of this wonderful letter, First uh, Peter, that we know as First Peter, we have Peter focused in upon our hope in the gospel in verses 3 to 5. Follow along as I read the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, let's go to the Lord again and ask for his blessing uh, on the preached word. Lord, we thank you so much for your grace and your power. We thank you, Lord, for the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that no matter what storms come our way, that we can know the perfect peace. We think of that verse that says, you will keep in perfect peace, peace, peace for those who keep their minds stayed upon you. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider our hope tonight, that it would be a, a truly a stream that feeds that inner calm of heart. Open up the word to us. We pray you would open us up to the word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see three simple truths about our hope in Christ tonight. First of all, in this text, we see that our hope is a hope beyond death. A hope beyond death. Verse 3, the Bible says there that God the Father has caused us to be born again. 
unto a living hope. Now, why does he say living hope? Why does he just say hope? Why living hope? Well, I think the best explanation of that is what comes next. That we've been born again to a living hope through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, the reason that Peter focuses in on the resurrection of our Lord is not just because it's through his redemptive work that we are born again, but he's focused on the resurrection because it is our Lord's resurrection which guarantees our resurrection from the dead. The empty tomb in Palestine is the guarantee that you and I will be raised from the dead on the last day. Now, there are going to be, there's going to be a number of Christians that are still alive when the Lord returns. But if the Lord tarries his coming and we all go by the way of the grave, our hope is that because Christ was raised from the dead and we've been united to him by faith, we will be raised from the dead on the last day. It's a living hope. Because it is the hope of life at the resurrection. It is a living hope because it is a hope that awaits us beyond the dark and dreary grave. It's the hope of eternal life in Christ. But now, I also think it's helpful to think of this living hope by considering or contrasting it against the opposite kind of hope. Now, I think you're smart people. Let me ask you, what is, listen, what is the opposite of a living hope? Somebody here, I thought I heard someone say it. A dead hope. It's a dead hope. A living hope is the opposite of a dead hope. Now listen, dead hope is a good description of all the false religions of this world. Now, do false religions offer a kind of hope to people. What about let's run these planes into buildings and we'll rake up in paradise. But that's a dead hope, isn't it? Why? Because when they wake up the next moment in eternity, surprise, surprise, it's a defective and a deceptive hope. All false religions of the world offer dead hope. Why? Because there's no hope beyond the grave. But now listen, it's more than that. A dead hope is hope in anything that pertains to this present world before death. A dead hope can be applied to anything in this present world before death. Now, it is normal and perfectly legitimate for Christians to anticipate and to labor for a good future in this world. Do you agree with that? And it's even right to use the word hope for these things. In fact, you know, the, the proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. We hope for things in this world. Life would be dreary and, and dry if we didn't have expectations and they didn't drive us. We, one day we hope to get married. We hope to have children. We hope to own our own home. We hope to have an adequately funded retirement. We hope that the Lions can win the Super Bowl. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, right? Those things are legitimate and good things, and it's right to use the word hope for them. And, And we are taught in Scripture to look to our Heavenly Father's hand to provide us with those kinds of things. 
But now listen, our hope for such things, in one sense, is still a dead hope. You know why? Because let's say for argument's sake that God gives you everything that you could hope for in this world in terms of the temporal. He holds nothing back. You receive it in fullest measure. It's a dead hope. You know why? Because how many of those things are you going to be able to take with you beyond the grave? I'm not talking about spiritual blessings. I'm not talking about those kinds of things here, but I'm talking about the temporal and the material and the circumstantial in this life. How many of those things will you take with you beyond the grave? All of them will come to an end. In one sense, if you place all of your hope in those things, that's a dead hope. But by his mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope, a hope that is beyond the grave. That hope of what we will receive at the resurrection, which will not be temporal, but will be eternal. It's living. It's eternal. So it is a hope beyond death. And because it's a hope beyond death, secondly, it's also a hope that's beyond destruction. A hope beyond destruction. Verse 4, Peter goes on to say, to obtain an inheritance... And then listen to these words, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Now, when the Bible says God has caused us to be born again, that, that one of the things that that means is that we're part of God's family. God is our heavenly father. And as a faithful, loving, and generous father, he has promised to us and eternal inheritance. And notice Peter, again, how he describes it. It's imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away. And those three terms all add up to make this point. Our inheritance, the one that we're going to receive on the other side of the grave at the resurrection, that inheritance is free from all the, of all the effects of sin and the curse imperishable. It's not subject to death. It's not subject to decay. Undefiled can have uh, connotations of, of, of the idea that it's pure and untainted by sin or there's nothing wrong with it. Will not fade away. It will never wither. It will never wear out. Listen, that, that wonderful refrigerator you have, if you live long enough, will be replaced. That washer and dryer that are like your children. One day, you're going to have to replace them. Always wearing out. I mean, we, you know, I get in the van Thursday afternoon at my parents' house, and we were going to go off and just sort of knock around a little bit and get out of the house. And, and I get in, and I hit the start button, and it doesn't start. And so, you know, we had to charge it up and then charge it up, held the charge overnight, got in the car the next day, drove it, finally got back, got and then my wife had to go somewhere yesterday and she gets in and she opens the door for Savannah, but that door won't close. Uh Oh, and guess what? It didn't start. So I'm crawling over, getting to my expedition, trying to hook things up, get it started and, and all that. So guess what? One of my tasks will be for tomorrow. I have got to go find out what in the world is draining the battery. The battery's good. The alternator's good. The secondary battery's good. I mean, things just happen in this life. Things wear out. Doesn't matter how much money you pay for it. It's all subject to sin and to the curse. 
But he says our eternal inheritance, it's imperishable. It's not subject to death or decay. It's untainted by sin. It will never wear out. And Peter says it's reserved in heaven for you. It's safeguarded. It's watched over. Listen, what can happen to your stuff in this world? People that don't like to work for what they get will take it from you. And sometimes they might use the law to do it. Listen, your eternal inheritance cannot be taxed. It's yours. See, no matter how much we try to protect things in this world, even relationships, moms, dads that we love, grannies that we love, siblings that we love, we can't keep any of it in this life. I mean, isn't that the one thing, and I'm not trying to be drab and dreary, but one thing you know about every relationship, barring the Lord coming back anytime soon, one of you is going to go first. And we put that out of our minds as long as we can. It's just reality. But that's not true of our inheritance in heaven. It's eternal. Now, as beneficial as it might prove to be, we don't, we don't have time tonight to to do a detailed study of our eternal, indestructible inheritance. But let me just have you think with me for a few minutes about our inheritance. Think of that text over in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 to 17, where Paul says this about our inheritance. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Now that text does not say that we are heirs with Christ, does it? It's not what it says. That's shortchanging yourself. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We get to share in his inheritance. And here's the wonderful truth of the gospel. His inheritance is coming to him as a reward for obedience. We share in that inheritance by grace through faith. Now there's a sense in which it's our reward if we persevere to the end. But even then it's not meritorious. And ultimately who is it that gives us the faith to continue to the end? Not one of you will get to your eternal inheritance and say, did you see my wonderful faith? You're going to ascribe it all to the glory and honor of God. And there may be many aspects to this inheritance that we can trace out. One, of course, is that we will inherit a new heavens and a new earth. Listen, our eternal inheritance will not be floating around on clouds strumming harps. Right? And listen... Even when we die and we go into the presence of God before the resurrection, that is not even our ultimate hope. Our ultimate hope comes at the resurrection when we will be a part of a new heavens and new earth where Peter says, wherein dwells righteousness. Our eschatological hope is earthly. Jesus says the meek will inherit what? The earth. It'll be a new earth, renewed and rejuvenated. And that's a place where created things will never wear out. 
No more dead batteries in cars. None of that nonsense in the new heavens and the new earth. And all of creation will be even more beautiful than this one. And what will it be like? And perhaps we could trace out many scriptures and we could, we could draw deductions and make connections and, 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 and wonder and, and think about what that new heavens and new earth will be like. But I don't know how much scripture really tells us. And I think there's going to be a great element of surprise. I'll put it to you this way. It's probably going to be much better than you think. Much better than you think. An element of joyful surprise. I like that gospel song, What a Day That Will Be. Have you ever heard that song? When my Jesus I shall see. I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand, leads me through the promised land. What a day, glorious day that will be. And Paul certainly gets to the heart of our inheritance, does he not? In verse 17 in this text, he says, we will be glorified with Christ. Perhaps the most valuable thing in that treasure chest of our inheritance will be the fact that when we see Jesus with our literal eyeballs, he is so powerful and so virtuous, just the sight of him is going to change us into his glorious image. Where not only will we have sinless spirits and sinless hearts, we will have glorified bodies. Glorified bodies. Remember what uh, uh, Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. I don't want to steal Mornay's thunder, so I'll just read it and not say too much about it. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Listen, do you know that part of your inheritance is you? You're going to get you and have you in a way that you've never had you. You're going to have a perfect, sinless body. You're going to have a body that can never be sick. Think of what of any ailment that plagues you, whether it be allergies or Mr. Arthur. You know who Mr. Arthur is? Mr. Arthur-itis. A bad heart, cancer, no more COVID, pandemics, no more common colds, gone. No more of those things. Never will we have to, to wonder about that strange ache. Nevermore will we get bad news from the doctor, for there'll be no need of a doctor. We'll have perfect bodies. Think with me about that wonderful text in Revelation 21 that certainly highlights something of our inheritance, where John writes in verse 1 and following, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Stop. Listen, perhaps the greatest... I said earlier, maybe the greatest is our glorified bodies and we made like Christ. But I think we could argue that God himself is the greatest inheritance. That reminds me of Psalm 16 where the psalmist said, The lions have fallen to me and 
pleasant places. That's Old Testament imagery about the land being divided for the people. And I think that the point that psalmist is making there is that he is satisfied with his lot because his lot is none other than God himself. The very fact that we're going to be in God's presence forever. In fact, he is the one who's going to make it heaven. God himself. Verse 4, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Let me blow your mind for a moment. You ever read these words from Jesus in Revelation 3? And don't ask me to explain them in detail because I don't know how. Listen to what he says, Revelation 3 verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. What in the world does that mean? That we're going to sit down with Christ in his throne. Now, I don't know all that that means, but I like it. And it's going to be better than whatever I think it is probably. Maybe it, maybe it has something to do with what Paul says back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1 and 3, 1 to 3, when he says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? What in the world is that going to be? I don't know, but I like it. Somehow we're sharing in judgment. I don't understand it all. Look, if you're a believer, no matter how far along you are in the faith or in the process of sanctification, this is your inheritance. It's your inheritance that you will receive at the resurrection, which is guaranteed by Jesus' resurrection. It is a hope beyond death. And it is a hope beyond destruction. But then thirdly, it's a hope beyond defeat. A hope beyond defeat. Notice again what Peter says in verse 5. Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, there seems to be a, a shift in emphasis at this part of the, in the text. Do you see it? In verse 4, the focus is on our inheritance. An inheritance that can never be defiled, that will never fade away, that God is reserving and He's preserving and protecting. Nothing can happen to that inheritance. Right? If you have an inheritance coming to you in this world, there's always that nervousness, there's always that chance that something could happen. No, God's reserving that inheritance. But in verse 5, the shift, there's a shift in focus. In verse 5, it's not the inheritance that's being preserved. We are being preserved. We are being protected. Let me help you understand it with an illustration, the, the shift in emphasis. Think about it like this. Your parents are going to leave you a multi-million dollar inheritance. Now, not only is the inheritance itself at risk in this world, there's something else that's a problem. If you don't live long enough, you're not going to receive it, right? You've got to be preserved. So no matter how seemingly secure the inheritance, if you die before you get there, you'll never touch it. 
And along the same lines, what good is an eternal inheritance if something happens to you before you get to the resurrection? So Peter assures us that God the Father is not only protecting and preserving what's coming to us, he's protecting and preserving us to make sure we get there. The word protected actually has a military connotation. It can mean to guard like military soldiers are guarding, a garrison of soldiers. It is to keep something secure, and in this case, it is to keep us secure. We are being protected by God's power so that we don't fail to obtain the inheritance. Now let me ask you, are there real threats to us in terms of getting to our inheritance? There are real threats. We have real enemies that are real. They are not imaginary. First of all, there's, there's the world. Do you count this evil world system as an enemy or as a friend? The evil world system that both seeks to allure us by its glitter and gold to make the material and the temporal our top priority and then it gets mad at us when we don't conform. There's constant pressure from this world. The flesh is an enemy. There's the moral corruption that wars against every step we take toward glory. And there are times where this war is intense and the flesh gets the upper hand. Then, of course, who's that great, great enemy? The enemy, we know him as the devil who is skilled at taking advantage of the world's allurements and influence and pressure to conform. And, and he's skilled at exploiting the moral corruption of our hearts. And he knows how to get the moral corruption of our hearts and the world linked together. These are real enemies. And left to ourselves, how many of us could make it safely through the resurrection to receive the inheritance in our own power? Have you ever looked back over your Christian life at times with amazement that you are still in the path that leads to life? After all of the dangers, the temptations, the trials, the times where you threw in the towel and God threw it back at you. You kicked the can and it rolled back at your feet. You look, when you see the remaining sin of your heart, even if it's never broken out in full expression, you know the seeds are there because you live with yourself. Or maybe they broke out to a certain degree and it could have been your undoing. And yet here you sit today, repentant, trusting Christ. What's the reason you're still hanging in there? 1 Peter 1.5 is the reason. God has protected you by his mighty power. He has preserved you. None of your enemies have been successful in taking you off the path of glory because of his protection. Now, does that exclude action on your part? Notice, no, because notice the Bible says here that God does this through faith. Whose faith? God's faith? No, God doesn't need faith. Through your faith. Through your faith. But notice the text does not say we are protected by his power on the account of our faith. The text does not say that we're protected by God's power to final salvation on the basis of our faith. In other words, folks, it's not faith that preserves us. God protects us and preserves us. 
Our faith is not the effective power that does the preserving. Faith is merely the instrument that God uses to preserve us by his power. It is faith that keeps us connected to Christ and the Spirit. Allow me to illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's imagine that up here there's this huge chasm, 10-mile chasm. And you're over here, and your eternal inheritance is over here. Okay, And there's no way by your power and by your strength that you can make it across. No matter how much faith you have in your ability to jump and make it across. See, listen, faith in faith is not a gospel doctrine. You ever heard that? Just believe. You just got to have faith. In what? You ever hear people talk like that? Maybe unbelievers? You just got to believe. You just got to hold on to faith. Listen, faith is not some kind of commodity that you can harness and bring into your use. Faith is not something you, you muster up that can work magic. You don't trust your faith. Trusting your faith will land you in hell. Trusting Christ takes you to heaven. So imagine here... You realize, okay, so I've convinced you, no matter how much faith you might have that you can make it, that faith won't get you across, will it? So imagine with me that there is a bridge that makes the, that crosses the great chasm built by God himself. Now you have to have faith in that bridge to step on it and to make it across and to walk the length of it. But listen, if you walk across that bridge, was it your faith that really did the job? Now your faith played a role, but your faith was no good without the sturdy and reliable bridge that God built. Yes, you must have faith. God won't believe for you, but it's his power that crosses the chasm. And you know, here's the point I'm driving at. That's good news because it's not the strength of your faith that gets you across. Aren't you glad the text does not say that God's keeping us by his power through strong faith? Through mighty faith? Aren't you glad the text does not say you've got to have that faith that makes Jesus marvel? Read that in the gospel? It says faith. Take the believer who has the weakest wavering faith in history. If he gets on the bridge, he makes it across no matter how weak his faith is in the bridge. He will make it across just as much and just as well as the believer who has the strongest faith in history. Now, don't get me wrong. Strong faith will help you enjoy the trip a lot more. It makes the journey sweeter than weak faith. And this is why you have variety among Christians. You have some people whose faith in the bridge is so strong and so powerful, they just go across it whistling, turning cartwheels, looking over the the, the rail and doing a handstand on the rail and looking down and spitting down at the devil. And they've got that much confidence. Never break a sweat. You know Christians like that. Don't they make you mad? 
And then you have this little believer. His faith is so weak, he won't even walk. He's crawling, trembling, and jerking. Sure, the bridge will give out at any moment. But here's the thing. He still has enough faith to be on the bridge. And then you've got believers. They don't believe they're on the bridge because they don't remember how they got on the bridge. I don't remember when I got on the bridge, so I must not be on the bridge. But no matter what variety of faith we have, it's not the faith that protects us. It's God that protects us. Through faith, no matter how weak that faith is, we will make it across. God keeps believers, all believers, safe and secure until that glorious day when at the resurrection we receive our eternal inheritance. So what kind of faith do we have? A little pop quiz. What kind of hope do we have, rather? It is a hope beyond what? Death. It's a hope beyond destruction. It's hope beyond defeat. Now, what this means practically, first of all, is that the believer has reason to rejoice even during the deepest and darkest valleys of this present world. Heard a preacher say one time that the Christian life is made up of storms. You're either in one, headed for one, or you just came out of one. Either in one, headed for one, or just come out of one. And the believer always has reason to rejoice. Why do I say that? Look at verse 6. Right after this text, Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what? We greatly rejoice in this living hope, in this eternal, indestructible inheritance. We greatly rejoice that we are being protected for that inheritance by the power of God. Peter says you greatly rejoice in this, but even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Peter says you're rejoicing. But right now, if necessary, some of you are going through very hard and heavy times. Now, I don't think Peter is saying that the joy has been interrupted by the heaviness. I think he's saying these are simultaneous, concurrent realities. You are rejoicing, though you also at this point are deeply grieving. You see, folks, listen, the heaviness is real. Biblical faith and, and gospel faith and biblical faith is not denying the heaviness. And when Peter talks about the heaviness here, I don't think he's just talking about the trials objectively being heavy, but maybe referencing also the emotional state that the trials bring upon us. And faith doesn't deny the heaviness. It doesn't put on a painted on smile and, and, and a fake song on the lips. There are times like Job where we just sit in silence. But even then, there can be that hidden stream of joy. And we can know in the midst of God's house and His worship times of rejoicing. Why? Because we have something beyond the grave that can't be touched by these present trials. Faith faces the hard realities of life. But faith gives us the ability to experience real joy because of our hope. And in fact, the truth of this text can be a great test of the reality of true and saving faith in Christ. You remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5? He says, lay not for yourselves, not, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust corrupts and, and thieves break through and steal. 
But rather, what should we do? We should lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven that are never subject to that kind of decay and thievery. When our treasure is on earth, our ultimate hope is here. When our ultimate hope is in things, places, people, and relationships, we put all our stock in it. Let me, let me say this as a minister of the gospel. I shouldn't even put my ultimate hope in my ministry here. Even though those things are eternal, I don't know what's waiting around the bend. And we put all of our stock in that which is before the resurrection. If that's true of you, my friend, you will progressively become a miserable person as you go through this life. And you see the things you hope for begin to fade and slip through your fingers. I was telling the congregation this morning that, that with the death of my grandmother, I've had other people die close to me, but her husband, my grandfather, died almost 36 years ago. I was 10 years old. I was about a month from being 11 years old. So that was a long time ago. So he's been gone a long time. I've had a, had a great-grandmother die since and some uncles and aunts and and uh, another, my mother's mother died not long after Lisa and I were married 18 years ago. So I've, I've experienced it, but I've not had a lot of that. And, and I'm realizing now at going on 47 years old in March, that the longer I live in this world, the more that kind of stuff's going to happen. And, and the more I'm going to have to face the hard realities of this life in, in, in levels and degrees that I never will. And you see, here's the thing. You, you can see that when people have their treasures on earth, that they'll become increasingly miserable and disillusioned and hardened. Why? Because they all fade away. Even loved ones that leave us, as painful as that is, no earthly relationship, no matter how close of kin, none of them lasts forever here. And we'll become bitter, disillusioned people if we put all of our hopes and all of our joy in those things. But you see, when our hope is set on what lies beyond, awaits beyond the grave, that produces a constant stream of steady joy and peace in the heart. And oh friend, what a delight it is when loved ones part in cases where we have real confidence that we'll see them again. Isn't that part of the hope too? Loved ones that have gone on in the Lord, that we're going we're gonna to receive them back in ways that we never have without, without, without any of the annoying things that were in their personalities. Isn't it funny though when people pass away, the things that drove you crazy about them are the things you sit around and laugh about as a family when they're gone. You wish you could have them back one more time so that they could annoy you. But yet we're going to have relationships that are so much deeper and richer than we've ever had in this world because our, our sin taints relationships. Isn't, brethren, that's one of the terrible things, even among Christians, what our sin does. There's going to come a day where I'll never sin against you again. You'll never sin against me again. No more needs for rebukes and reproofs. That day's coming. That day's coming. That's why we ought to maybe even... You know, you visit the grave of that, that, that saved loved one and take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians and you point at that grave and say, you don't have the last word. You're an enemy and Jesus is going to put you under your feet, under his feet.
It's a hope beyond death, beyond destruction, beyond defeat. And therefore believers have reason to rejoice even in the deepest and darkest valleys of this present world. But then also what this means practically secondly is that our eternal inheritance is worth whatever it costs us in this life to be faithful to Christ. Our eternal inheritance is worth whatever it costs us in this life to be faithful to Christ. And I'm going to tell you something that's not even my notes. Isn't that good? I won't even charge you for it. Just throw it in for free. It is, let me ask you this, is self-interest a sin? Does self-interest equal selfishness? It doesn't. Do you realize that the God of Scripture appeals to your best interest? He appeals to your highest self-interest. What happened in the Garden of Eden is that the devil tricked our first parents as to what was in their highest interest. He got them to go for something lower. My, the gospel, I believe, comes from a God who appeals to Jeff Johnson's best and highest self-interest. He is constantly appealing to what's best for me. And he uses that as a mode of faithfulness. And one of the motives of faithfulness is it's worth it to remain faithful to Christ because of what I'm going to receive at the resurrection. He says it's in your best interest, Jeff. It's in your highest self-interest to give up whatever you need to in this present world to remain faithful to me. You see, listen, think of it this way. Whatever you have to lose in this world to be faithful to Jesus, you're going to lose it anyway. Right? It's all going to go up in flames one day. Even if it costs you your physical life, you're going to give it up one day. Why would I be so foolish as to try to preserve what can't be preserved? He that seeks to save his life will lose it. He that loses it for Christ and his gospel will save it. So even if I lose everything in this present world to be faithful to Jesus, I'm going to gain something at the resurrection I can never lose. The missionary Jim Elliott had this perspective several years before he was murdered. Murdered by the very people to whom he brought the gospel. He wrote in his journal, October the 28th, 1949, one of the great blessings of heaven is the appreciation of heaven on earth. Ephesian truth. Then he wrote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I don't know of anyone that's ever, any of us that surely have never suffered like the Apostle Paul. And yet what kept him faithful to the end? He said, because we, we keep our eyes on the things that can't be seen. Because the things we can't see are eternal. They, they don't even weigh. It's not even worthy to be compared with the things that are coming our way. That's why we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. And dear brethren, isn't this a passage that calls us to perseverance? I mean, still, yes, it, it's not strong faith, even the weakest of believers, but it is a fact that, that God preserves us through faith, which means we've got to keep believing. We have a responsibility in this. We've got to keep believing. And that is an action that we purposefully do. Though it is the gift of God and the work of the Spirit, we are the ones who are to believe. 
And maybe I'm talking to some people tonight. You've been, you're very discouraged in a dark place. Things going on personally, things going on ecclesiastically, things going on at your work, in your home, whatever. Many things kind of caving in on you at once. And, and you're wondering, is it worth it? You see, that is the hiss of the serpent. And I would call you tonight as your brother to keep believing, keep trusting, keep clinging to the hope that's in the gospel. In the midst of all that's going on, church, all the midst of all that's going on, Harbor, keep your eyes on what awaits you beyond the grave. Let that shape your entire perspective on life. Let that put a song on your lips. Let that put a spring in your step. May that shape all of your interactions, that you're full of hope. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep trusting. And as one has said, don't miss it for the world. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We pray that you would take this text and write, write it upon our hearts. We pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by the eternal hope we have in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that our hope that's in the gospel is not hoping for the best. It's not maybe so. We, we think so. We're 99% sure it's a certainty we can have in our hearts. We pray, Lord, you would take the unseen realities that we have not yet tasted and touched. And we pray, Lord, that you would make them as real to us as the air we breathe and the clothes that are upon our bodies. May, Lord, it shape every facet and moment of our lives. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.